Welcome to Elevenses with me, Danielle Perry, a podcast that celebrates the kind of conversation that just happens when we put down our phones and chew the fat. Every single guest in each series is asked the same 11 questions. My guest today is a DJ, journalist and broadcaster who's witnessed many of the most pivotal moments in popular culture in this and the last century. As Radio One's longest serving and I should add first female DJ, she's spread joy with her passion for music and ever expanding taste. She's hung out with Hendrix, The Beatles, Birds, The Clash and Primal Scream. She's DJed all over the world from Ibiza to Miami, at Kate Moss's birthday party, even in Jury's Wake. Through her TV appearances at the Old Grey Whistle Test and over 50 years on air, she's championed pioneering artists in music, putting together compilations, writing sleeve notes, as well as three volumes of autobiography. Her latest is Hey, Hi, Hello. Warm, insightful and dryly funny, it's brimful of stories about early raves in the late 50s, big names and 60s counterculture and those first days at Radio 1. With reflections on politics and punk, acid house, grime and breakbeat, it also includes transcripts with musicians she's talked to from Bob Marley to Billie Eilish. A true modernist, a complete visionary. I have worshipped her for years. Annie Nightingale, CBE. Welcome to Elevenses. Thank you very much, Danielle. That's a wonderful intro. <laughs> How are you? You well? I'm not bad. How are you? I've been um, sort of itching to get back doing this podcast because, as you know, as a fellow broadcaster and audio creator, there's something weirdly addictive about it, isn't there? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I warn people about this about broadcast. I say, be careful. Once you're in, it's a drug. You never, ever want to leave. And in this episode of Elevenses, I was drinking Night Nurse at home in Brighton on the South Coast and he was in West London on a very mild pale green tea. What you've done with your career is extraordinary, of which we'll sort of go through in various guises. But the point of Elevens is, is to sort of get to know you as a, as a person a bit better, I suppose. So we're going to start off. I'm going to ask you, what was your first or clearest memory of childhood? Well, I'm glad you asked me this because it's really changed, actually. It's, <laughs> it's being quite annoyed. <laughs> I used to get annoyed with people for saying... Because my real name is Nightingale, people used to say to me when I was a child, oh, you're going to be a nurse like Florence Nightingale? And I think, what a stupid question. Because, (laughs) you know, are you going to put bits on top of people's houses and make roofs out of them because your name is Thatcher? Yeah, it, it seems such a stupid question. I am far too squeamish, unfortunately and over-empathise and I would be no good to anyone as a nurse. I have huge admiration for them. But that used to really get to me. And the other thing people used to say to me, oh, you've got long fingers. Are you going to be a pianist? (laughs) Now, actually, that is a very stupid question because you don't need long fingers to be a pianist. You need very muscular hands. So having long, tapering fingers is no use at all. I mean, there's one jazz pianist, I think, that had big hands, Theolonius Monk. But the rest, like you say, yeah, I was a pianist. I definitely do not have long fingers. So I'm with you on that. Okay. Also, my married name is Presley. Oh, oh, oh my God. I hear you. I hear you. I hear what you're saying. Oh, my goodness. Well, I can't begin. Yeah. What's the worst you get from that, then? It's just that, you know, when I was pregnant, it was like, you're going to call him Elvis. Ah. It's like, no. So Annie grew up in London suburbia in the 1940s, listening to her parents' music on the BBC's Light programme. And later on as a journalist and pop columnist, she'd do one of the first interviews with a young David Bowie 
and be proposed to by Paul McCartney as a joke. But her formative years were spent listening to the crooners and big bands that, at the time, made up most of the music on British radio. What changed my life and my generation was Radio Luxembourg. So I had my own little radio, which my dad bought me. And I used to try and tune in to this thing called Radio Luxembourg, which to me was like Hollywood or something, like some magical land where all these famous singers and entertainers were maybe somewhere in the sky. You didn't know. It was like a fantasy medium and you had to tune it in and you'd lose it very easily. And that was so tantalising because the very tune you wanted to hear, which you couldn't hear any other way because there's no internet yeah. or Spotify or iTunes. So the only chance you had to hear this tune and this particular show called The Top 20 on Sunday Nights just tuning it in was really maddeningly difficult. Mm. In a weird way, we're almost back to that now. When you get rebuffering on your laptop or something, we've almost come full circle. <laughs> I don't know, maybe not, but Radio Luxembourg. And I didn't really know where Luxembourg was. Was it Hound Dog by Elvis Presley? That was your first record. Yeah, that was one of the first ones I ever bought, for sure. Um, it was music for young people. It was alternative music. You were not going to hear this on the BBC. And that's what was different about it, because my dad, because he loved radio, had the radio all the time. So they had a kind of what was called a radiogram, which was like a radio in a cabinet with also a record player as well. Yeah, I've got one. Yeah. <laughs> and he'd have one a speaker to it and extensions to the kitchen. And I could hear it in the garden as well. Music is so evocative, it brings back so many memories. It's amazing, isn't it, how it sort of date stamps things. Yeah. So you sound very sort of happy with those memories. When and where are or where were you at your happiest, would you say? Oh, the 90s. <laughs> Not as a child, no, the 90s was brilliant. And I was aware that there was something very exciting going on and that I could take part in it and contribute to it. And I loved seeing that, that social revolution happening. And the effects of it are still there. Give me some pivotal moments of the 90s, looking back. Well, Acid House, the whole Acid House thing. See, everything changed. Dancing changed, the kind of way to dance changed. I remember going to the GMAX in Manchester to see the Happy Mondays and realised I stood behind this guy and copied the way he danced, which was keep your feet firmly on the floor and wave your arms and your body around. <laughs> and that was very, very different from... John Travolta or Saturday Night Fever or Grease or any of that, which was all footwork. This was the opposite of that. And it's only a small part of it. But that, that was just one night that I remember. I mean, there were loads of sure. things. And I started doing club nights, which I so enjoyed and just felt I was allowed to be part of it. Although I, I wasn't the young generation. I didn't want to feel stupid, you know, but I was allowed to be an honorary raver. Mm. And I say to them, look, I have been round the block. And they went, yeah, well, we don't care. But this was a great thing about them. They were, they were welcoming, whereas punks earlier on had not been. Right. They were very difficult to um, be part of that group for understandable reasons. But the ravers of the 80s, 90s were very warm and very inclusive. 
I mean, I would have loved to have been up in Manchester in those days and factory records and really kind of witnessed that firsthand. I know it inspired artists like Bjork, didn't it? Hugely being at those club nights. Massive. Oh, yeah. I remember meeting her about that time. And what amused me was that obviously she's from Iceland and she'd have that Icelandic accent. But she also had a sort of East London accent as on top of it yeah. as well, which is unique. It was unique, you know, the way she spoke. I loved it. She's a force, isn't she? And I know that there's a huge chapter on um, Acid House and, and that period of your life in your book, so I urge everybody to go and read that as well. Thank you. Now, is there a work of art or piece of music that takes your breath away, which is an impossible question for a music fan like yourself, I know, but is there one... Well, it's a piece of art. It's not a piece of music. Okay. And it's very well known, The Birth of Venus by Botticelli. Okay. Which I saw in the Uffizi Gallery in Florence in Italy. And it is mind-blowing. It's huge. And the colours, and you think it was painted 600 years ago. Yeah, it's so bright. And it literally leaps off the wall at you. You know, you've got Venus, this is a nude woman with lovely hair, beautiful hair, <laughs> um, standing on a shell. Apparently the story is that the gods of the West Wind, the Zephyrs, were blowing this wind to blow her ashore from the sea. So she was like paddle boarding, but without a paddle. <laughs> so, so she's just come ashore. But when you see it for real, they look like angels coming at you it's as though there isn't enough canvas to contain these huge figures, the power of it. Mm. And the other thing is that it, it feels very now. And I've been fortunate to go to Sicily several times. And there's something about some of those Renaissance paintings. You realise that they were quite, in a way, representational art. They were painting what they saw in terms of landscapes. And if you go somewhere like that and stand by the sea at night and watch an amazing storm with huge thunderclouds and lightning, they look like a Renaissance painting. And you realise that those paintings were what they were seeing. And that is what we see now. They were like the photographs of their time to an extent. Mm. And that's what struck me. I thought, you're seeing now what they saw 600 years ago. Unbelievable. So amazing. Um, do you have a recurring dream, Annie? Um, yeah, I have recently because I've not been able to go anywhere like Sicily or other favourite places in the Mediterranean. I dream that I am walking along the shore on wet sand and you know when the tide is out and you just get those tiny little waves that are kind of see-through mm. that just run over your toes as you walk along the beach. And I keep getting this very vivid dream. When I wake up, it's as though I've actually been there. It's obviously wishful thinking. Huh. It's tonic, isn't it? I mean, I'm down in Brighton at the moment. Are you? Yeah, I live in Hove, yeah, but you... You were down here for a while, weren't you, as well, living by the About sea? About 20 years, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do you miss it? Do you miss the sea? Um, well, I've never really left. So I've always said about Brighton, I have to keep going there and check it hasn't fallen in the sea. You never really leave it. It's very hard to leave. It is, yeah, yeah. But I've needed to be in London. I'm a London person originally. 
and I always knew I needed to come back here, really. No, I understand that. With a career spanning more than five decades, Annie's garnered her fair share of awards. She's a CBE, Commander of the British Empire, a member of the Radio Academy's Hall of Fame, and at one point had the title of Music Magazine's Cana of the Year. But the legions of fans who listen to her request shows know that it's her open heart and open mind that make her so special, having spent almost her entire life championing the best and the most creative. What or who is your biggest inspiration? I would say I'd probably have a different inspiration every other day. Yeah. There's never been one person. I get inspired by all kinds of things, by Emily Maitlis on Newsnight. I think she's brilliant, you know, as a broadcaster, as, a, as an interviewer. I'm inspired by Billie Eilish as an extraordinary talent, as a singer. Um, I mean, I get my inspiration everywhere, and I think that's a good thing. It's not just channeling one person, but anywhere that makes you feel this person is talented or witty or I can be better because of this person. I can learn from someone. I greatly believe in learning from other people, see what other people have learnt from life mm. that they can pass on to you. So I don't mean like I'm a sponge. I don't mean that. But I do think, you know, if you, you pick and choose and, and find things that resonate with you and you think that is so true, you know, that, oh, I hadn't thought of that. That's a wonderful way of looking at something. So I find it everywhere. There isn't any one person. You're hugely inspired by the new and supporting the new as well. And I think you said, if we listen to the youth, we will learn so much. Well, I remember what I was saying to you about the beginning about people asking me stupid questions <laughs> when I was a kid. Um, I remember thinking then all the frustrations that you go through in adolescence and when you feel you're not understood or you're misunderstood and you can't communicate with people and people don't understand what you're talking about or getting at. And I remember thinking then, remember what this is like. Remember what it's like to be 13, 14, 15, which is, I think, a very difficult age. And try and remember how that feels and keep that with you so that when you're talking to young people, you will not talk down to them. You will, you will remember how it feels to be them. Mm. And I really have tried to do that. You know, I had so little confidence at that kind of age. I didn't think I was any good at anything ever and that everybody else was much cleverer and much more talented and in every way. I just did. And I like to say to people, look, there are things out there that don't even exist yet that you would absolutely love to do and you'd be brilliant at it, but keep your horizons wide now and don't be pushed into something that you don't want to do very early on. Absolutely. And hopefully that does not happen as much now as it used to when people had to follow their father's footsteps or their mother's footsteps. The main word is freedom, that I want everybody and young people to enjoy freedom, to discover what it is that they're going to get the most from life from and the satisfaction and the reward and the fulfilment. That's the main word, is fulfilment. And I'm not trying to be down with the kids, any of that. It's just that feeling of remembering what it was like and how frustrating it was mm. and trying to hold on to that and try not, <laughs> not to be too annoying. <laughs> On to question six, is there an item of clothing that you love or wish you still had that always changes or change the way you felt? Was there a favourite piece of clothing that you treasure? 
Annie? Well, I guess, yes, actually. Um, it's called The Panda Coat. Okay. And it's, there's a picture of it in the book, standing in Red Square in Moscow with two guys either side of me who were what is known as fixers in, in the media business. If you go filming somewhere, someone who shows you around and gets you the permission to film and record and all that kind of stuff. And this was in the 80s, I guess. Moscow was not what it is now. I haven't been back recently, so I'm not sure. But these two guys in the photograph, they, well, they look really shady, but they were brilliant fun. And they, <laughs> they could get you anything. They said, what you do, you have to join the Communist Party, then you get anything you want. So I went, okay, thanks for the tip. Anyway, so this coat was that very shaggy white with big black splodges on it. And I still have it. Mm -hmm. And I also went to Romania in that right after the revolution there. It's a coat to wear in the snow. It has great memories for me and I'm glad I kept it. And there were, I think, I mean, they weren't that wildly expensive. And I think there were a hundred of them made and some of them were black with white splodges and some were white with black splodges. And I think Nick Rose of Duran Duran had the black one. And a friend of mine has asked me if I would leave it to her. So I wouldn't dream of wearing it now, but I've kept it. <laughs> Who's your best friend? Well, I've got several best friends. And they happen to be dotted all over the world. I think of the people that I kind of grew up with, um, spent my formative years, I'm the only one who stayed in the UK. And I say it's because of the BBC. You know, I love my job. And that although I've travelled widely and love it, I've needed to be here. I've never been the person who has only one best friend. I've liked to have several friends. I was an only child and that. I needed other other people, contemporaries around me. So I built up a network of people rather than have just the, the one best friend, which some people have. That was never really my thing. So I've got long-term friends in places like Cape Town, Melbourne, America. So people who I've known from, from a long time ago are Brighton, Cornwall. But I've got friends in London as well. Mm, absolutely. I'm the same. All my friends are dotted around. It's, it's great when you can travel, but the last year or so it's been a bit tricky. Mm. Um, the next question is, what are you scared of? And I know it can't be like heights or anything like that, because I read that you love tall buildings. Is that right? I do. Yeah, I've done, I've done broadcasts from the BC Tower. That was the first one, because oh my God. at that time, Radio 1 building was right beside it. And I, at the time, was doing a really late night live show all Saturday night. You'd come out of the building and you'd look up and see this iconic tower where you knew all the radio waves were going from there all around the world. Mm. And I find that very romantic anyway. And I thought we should do the show from the top of that tower. And it took three years before I was allowed to do it. But we did it end of the summer so that the sunrise had to happen oh, amazing. at 7am and we had to plan it all years in advance so that we got the sunrise and it's like being at the top of a lighthouse. It's so bright when the sun comes up and it was an amazing experience. And we had DJs from all around the world there 
and the view is fantastic. And I also did broadcast from the Spinnaker Tower. I know it, in Portsmouth, right? Portsmouth, yeah, which is spectacular at night, bright blue, beautiful. And the one in Berlin, the very famous one in Berlin. So heights you're not scared of, but what are you scared of? What's the one thing? I'm not going to tell you. Okay. I'm not going to tell you because I don't want to say it out loud. Okay. <laughs> what, because it's too frightening? <laughs> uh, I respect that if you don't want to go. No, well, no, there are various reasons, but I do have phobias and I don't like telling people about them. Sorry. That's totally fine. Your, your prerogative. No, totally good. Okay, well, go on to question nine. Um, what do you think your worst quality is? Mine is indecision. I'm terrible. I'm a Gemini, raging Gemini. So everything seems like a good option to me, but it's not a good quality. What's yours? Really? Yeah, I thought Libras were the one who were indecisive. Maybe you've got some Libra in you as well. Maybe. Um, my worst quality, it can be interrupting people. I hope I'm not doing it to you. You're not. I think I do do it in conversation and I hear it and I think it's really rude. I don't like it at all. I'm an Aries and I'm very typical. Yeah, we're very out front and not always the most diplomatic and tactful <laughs> as we should be. We can be bossy. We can be bossy, you know. Well, we are. <laughs> to be honest, like... But if you're interviewing somebody and they're going way off the point and you're running out of time <laughs> to finish your interview, you have to cut in. And But I don't, I really don't like doing that. But then there are people who go on and on and on and on and on and on. <laughs> and, you know, you never get a word in. <laughs> What's your biggest life lesson, do you think, Annie? Um, learn to shut your mouth and listen having said you know about my thing about interrupting people not jumping to conclusions which again I've tended to do and jump to the wrong conclusion making hasty decisions that are the wrong decision hmm. so take your time because I always want everything done immediately Oh, I think if I don't do it now, it won't happen. Mm -hmm. And so I rush into things. I really do. I've always rushed into things. And actually, much better I've learned now, if you've got something that's important, sleep on it. Don't take a decision straight away. And that, I think, would have come in handy a lot earlier. But there we are. Is that passion, do you think? Is that because you're so passionate about what you're doing and it's such an integral part of, of who you are and, and what you are? Yeah, possibly, but that's not to say you shouldn't do something about it. <laughs> it's no good to say, oh, I'm so passionate, and then go smashing your way through life, making mistake after mistake. We've all got room for improvement. Mm, absolutely. And, and I try and be a decent person. Yeah, that's the most important thing in life. Do as you would be done by. Be the person you want to work with. You know, be reasonable. You know, life's pretty short. Um just be a decent person, hmm. whatever that may take. And sometimes that's quite difficult. If you're dealing with a very difficult person, you don't necessarily want to feel that you should go out of your way and out of your way and be very, very patient and all <laughs> of those things. But that is what you should do. So that's what I tell myself all the time. Yeah. Reading your book in like the early chapters, when you got in that seat at Radio 1, 
you know, like, and all the men were like, oh, you want to do this, you want to do that. And you, you had this focus and you had this passion and you've seen it through still to the present day. But what advice would you give your younger self now looking back? Well, it may seem I had a lot of focus, but I had no confidence, certainly as a teenager and as a young person. And to this day, I'm full of self-doubt. So I might have a dream and a focus and what I want to do and aim to get there. I can be you know, quite determined. But that, that determination is not the same thing as being self-confident. Sure. So when I went to Radio 1 and say, look, can I have a go? I had no belief that I could do it, but I just wanted the opportunity because I thought I had the right background and experience in other areas of the media and that they were so anti-women that, that surely they could give me a go. And I used to say, that if I'm no good, I'll go away. I'll shut up. I'll go away straight away. But please, can I just try? And that was my thing. I didn't actually go, I am the greatest. I'm going to be the greatest DJ ever. Not at all. Yeah. And I had everything against me. So I think I have to say to people, don't feel, because you're not confident that you're not any good at anything, that is not the case. Annie, thank you so much for your time. And I honestly, as a, on a personal note, I want to thank you so much for paving the way for female broadcasters <laughs> and uh, really helping to open doors. You really have, you know, talking to you, it was such a privilege and your passion for new music is, is very addictive to listen to. Well, Danielle, thank you very much. I've enjoyed this so much. I really have. And give my love to Brighton. Annie Nightingale, complete legend. Thank you so much to her for her time and thank you for tuning in. As I've said before, if you really enjoyed it, I'd love you to rate and subscribe to the show, especially if you're on Apple. And join me, Danielle Perry, next time for more Elevenses. Until then.